0: So chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw this, this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to their guarded to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. So this is Herod Agrippa I. He reigned between 37 and 44 AD, and he ruled over Judea, the central part of Israel, which is where Jerusalem is located and Bethlehem is located. But he moved his headquarters to Caesarea. His father before him, Herod the Great, had built up Caesarea as a phenomenal seaport. And then he later moved the headquarters up there because he didn't really want to be that close to the Jews. Herod Agrippa I was part Jewish and part Edomite. Um, Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And so he sought to maintain favor with the support of the Jews. Herod the Great before him and Herod Agrippa I, basically, they desired... To have the jews like them they wanted the jews to like them they didn't want the jews to like them in a people-pleasing like please like me i'm okay if you're okay codependency kind of a sense okay i need people to prove me they wanted the jews to like them because the more the jews liked you the less they rebelled and the less you could put up with the less you had to put up with that and the more you could be eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die okay and that was kind of the idea. He Even though he would do whatever he wanted, he also thought about how would this affect the Jews. Because if it affected affect them negatively, they would rebel. Then I would have to deal with that. And then Rome would frown upon me. And then I would have to deal with that. And that, I, I really would just like a spa treatment today. So it was kind of more like that idea. And so when he arrested some of the disciples, he found the Jews were like, ooh, I like that. Somebody's is fine and you're like the highest ranking person that we can find and you're arresting them and they're just like, yes, 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 this is awesome. And Herod's like, ooh, I can really get them to like me and earn up some brownie points for future times where I want to do something that I want to do to tick them off maybe. And so he begins to do this. And the more public I make the trial, the more spectacle it is, the more I look good and the Jews. But something that Herod's never seemed to remember is that the Jews have a very short, fickle memory. Uh, No matter what you did, they didn't seem to remember how awesome you were for very long. He did this and mistreated them. So Peter, verse 5, was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the sentries stood guard at the entrances. So he's in prison behind iron. Gates He is shackled to soldiers, and there's soldiers outside the gates guarding him. There's no way they're getting out. suddenly, an angel of Yahweh appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrist. Then the angel then the angel said to him, "Put on your clothes and sandals." And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the angel told him, Peter, follow him out of the prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing. Um, what the angel was doing was really, oh, sorry. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. they we get this sense that Peter is asleep. He's been woken up out of a daze everything is dark. Remember in the ancient world, there's no electricity. So when it gets dark, it gets dark. And yes, there's a light shining, but everything else around you is dark and an angel appears to you. He probably may not really realize that this is reality. Even Paul, when he talks about being given visions of God, he's like, I have no idea what happened. I don't know whether I was taken out of my body up into and saw visions. I don't know whether my whole body was taken up. I don't know whether I was asleep or awake or whatever. I just know that I was caught up into the presence of God and saw things and it was validated as legit. Had that, if, if Peter is, if Paul's fully awake in saying that, imagine coming out of the sleep and being dazed and confused. And so, has, and so you get this idea like, when you wake your kids up in the morning really early and they start awake and you're like, okay, get your shirt on. And they're just kind of mindlessly putting their shirt on like, okay, now your shoes, right? And they're just, and you get them going through those motions and that kind of stuff. And it's not until later that they realize, wait a minute, I'm not in my bed anymore. That's the idea that's happening with Peter as we're dealing here. And so he's just kind of sleepwalking, not literally, but in that kind of a mentality as the angel is leading him. He thought that he was seeing a vision, so this could be a dream. They passed the first and second guards and came to the, the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly an angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that Yahweh, the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything And the Jewish people were anticipating. So once he had like lock, walked a few distances and he was now standing in the cool, of the breeze of the night and out in the open and some time had gone by, he realized, okay, this is not a vision. This is really, truly happening. And there's no greater proof that this is God than the fact that you're no longer in prison. Now, this is one of the greatest escapes from prison or in, that we have in the Bible. It's it's, one it's, And I think that one of the reasons that this escape is so supernatural, that later Paul will have one with an earthquake and stuff, but just the idea of that everybody was aware. I mean, you're going to wake up to an earthquake. And even the soldier is, like, freaking out and about ready to kill himself because the penalty for letting prisoners escape was public humiliation, death. But this, like all the soldiers are just not even aware of what's happening. The gates just like kind of open up on their own. The shackles just drop. The city gate opens up on its own. This is by far one of the most supernatural, awe-inspiring escapes from prisons. And I think the reason is, is that other than Caesar himself, you aren't dealing with any greater authority than Herod. Herod is the highest authority in the entire land. And, and he's, he's Roman authority too. He's not Jewish authority. He's Roman authority. And he is the voice of Caesar and Rome. And he is the highest authority other than Caesar. And so he, the highest authority other than Caesar, has grabbed Peter, the voice of the gospel, and put him in prison. And it's almost like God is saying, no, 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 I'm going to release him. And I'm going to release them and show you how inept your power really truly is. And we've seen God do that with other authorities. But as the authority ranking keeps ranking up, so does the miraculous display of God's power to show how great this is. You kind of see this back in First Samuel chapters four and five, when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they bring it into their city. And they put him in the temple of Dagon, which was one of the most powerful gods of them. And God just brings the statue down and bows it before the Ark of the Covenant. And then God cuts off the heads and the hands of the statue, which is the way that the Philistines would conquer and, and demonstrate their absolute power over people by cutting their heads off and carrying them around. And then a plague hit it. And then they took the Ark of the Covenant to a bigger city. Because even in our mentality, right, the bigger the city is, the more powerful this city for us, it's economic and politics, but for them, it would have been spiritual power because they believed in God's, which then also would be economic and political. And so they took it to a bigger city and the plague followed it and a bigger city and the plague followed it, and a bigger city. And God just kept amping the power up. With Every time they amped the power up, he amped it up. And that's what we're kind of seeing here, I believe, um, is that God is matching the power that is grabbing them and showing. It doesn't matter how much you flex, This is still nothing compared to what I can do. He allows Peter to be freed. Now remember, I will say this over and over again. He is not just freeing them to give them a happy-go-lucky life. Because eventually Peter and the other apostles, and Paul included, are going to have horrific deaths because of their faith and their obedience and their devotion to God. And there are many, 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 many people who came to Jesus for healing and Jesus turned them away. And even though he raised Lazarus from the dead and other people, they still got to die again. So this isn't just about comfort of life. This is about demonstrating the power of the word of God and inviting more people to embrace it as a result of that. Verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent an angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned upon him, verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, and also called Mark. This is the mother of John Mark, the one that will go with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. Where many people had gathered together and were praying, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed, and she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now this kind of makes sense. We've all seen the excitement of little kids, or even adults, where they're like, and you're like, okay, but like, I get that you're excited, but you forgot to like do this, like let them in. And so she's excited, and she just runs back, because here's the other thing. This 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 must be the most Central house of gathering for the believers. Because they're the ones who are truly praying for Peter. And of all the people that Peter could have gone and visited, this is the place that he chose. So this had to be an already recognized place of gathering. And that is the mother of John Mark. Her house is the hub of the greatest heart of Christianity that there is in Jerusalem at this time, or at least one of the major ones that peter is going to and so she goes back you were out of your mind they told her and when she kept insisting that it was so they said it must be in his angel now they immediately doubted her one probably because she was a little kid two it's the middle of the night and you can see lots of things but three even though they're really really praying hard even when we pray be really super honest do you expect God to truly answer your prayer in a supernatural, magical, that's like supernatural, miraculous, um, seemingly magical kind of a way? Or do you believe that God is going to use the doctor or the lawyer or the politics or some good politician come into power? Like when you're praying, like for our nation, um, do you think that God will just supernaturally, miraculously do something? Or will he just get rid of the bad people and bring in good people and slowly over time things will change? Do you believe that God can truly just instantly heal you, or he'll just bring the right doctor in? Um, Do you believe that, that God will just make the charges disappear, or that you'll get the right lawyer? Like, a lot of times, right, when we pray, sometimes we want a miracle, but deep down inside we think, yeah, but he'll just work through the natural ebb and flow of things, because God does that a lot, right? And he can, and he does. And we often don't think of seeing supernatural miracles, so that's what we expect. And I, get, I bet you there's a lot of that. Like, please let his trial go well tomorrow. Please, like, da 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 But they didn't expect him to really truly exclaim the power of Rome. This is like climbing out of a black hole of a CIA dungeon, okay? Mm-hmm. Once they, the CIA drops you in an unmarked, prison and Guantanamo Bay, there's no coming out. Even when everybody knows that you're there and you're there illegally, there's no coming out. I mean, there's lots of people in America who have been in prison for a while without trial, and nobody can do anything about it. And so this is what they're probably thinking. Then they said it must be his angel. The Jewish people this time period believed that everybody had their own personal guardian angel. There's no biblical Evidence for that. There's no biblical argument for your own personal guardian angel. Can God use angels to watch over you and protect you? Yes. But is like Andy the angel or Clarence the one specifically assigned to you? And you're like, I've got my own angel that just kind of follows me around your life? No, no, no. Maybe for you and maybe not for other people. I don't know. But not really like God has assigned an angel. Like you're born and you're like, okay here's your human, don't lose track of him. Stay with him for your entire life. Okay, well, not your entire life, their entire life. No, 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 that, that, that comes from a Jewish mysticism kind of an idea. But they also believe that your angel looked like you, like a doppelganger, which is kind of odd. Like, does that mean the angel shapeshifts after you die and takes on the appearance of the next person they're assigned? Like, there's so many problems with that. Or they also believed that this could have been the ghost of Peter and that maybe he had already died and that his spirit was wandering around and they believed that that was possible too. And so this might be the possible explanation for what's going on here when they're saying this. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. And Peter mentioned with his hand, motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and describe how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this. He said, James is the current leader of the church at this time in Jerusalem. And he said to them, and he left them to go to another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Perid had a thorough search made for them and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed you imagine how dumbfounded these soldiers would be they're standing there guarding and they blink and Peter's gone and you might be like oh I fell asleep but that all the guards had no idea what was happening the, the gates are open they had to be so dumbfounded and so confused at what was going on Herod had them executed Because in the Roman Empire, if you were given charge of a prisoner and they escaped in your duty, you were executed. No trial, no nothing. If they couldn't find him and there was no explanation, you were executed. And this encouraged you to not mess up, to not fall asleep on the job. And that's what Herod did to them as a result of this. This shows you what kind of person he is, as if we had to be told that. So verse 19b. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought the audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on the throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of Yahweh struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. This event is recorded outside of the Bible, and we're told that. When Herod was trying to make the people these cities like him, and they were trying to arrange peace because of the the need for food and all that kind of stuff, and they were interdependent upon each other, so he wanted to get them on his good side. He decided to come to Caesarea and an outdoor amphitheater that he had built there and invite these delegates there, and he presented himself before the crowd, and he basically dressed himself up in a silver robe. Now, that would have been a big deal, silver robes, like... Like even today, that's kind of rare, right? That shimmering thing. And that meant as he stood on the coast and the water reflects off of the, the sun reflects off the water, it would have reflected off of him. And it would have made him look like he was shining, like a sun or like a God. And the crowd immediately began to, um, to revere him as a God. I immediately began to have stomach pains and he immediately was carried off. And about five days later, he died. It is possible that he suffered from appendicitis that led to peritonitis? I think that's how you say it, complicated by wor- roundworms, or that he had a cyst caused by a tapeworm. So most likely this idea of being eaten by a worm means that he had roundworms or a tapeworm in his system, and, that pre-medic- and without the medicine that we have today, this would have been incredibly detrimental to his health and eventually killed him. And it's kind of God's way of just humbling him. And so between this escape from prison and that later way that he died just shows that God has absolute power over these political entities and he can do whatever he wants. In contrast, not only was Peter freed, but the church begins to flourish even more because nothing can stop the word of God. Verse 25, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, and taking with them John, also called Mark. Barnabas and Saul were put in charge of collecting the money that they had gathered to provide for this famine. And they delivered the money to Jerusalem. And they were delivering it to the Antioch Christians' gift of the church. Now, it's also hard to know what the chronology here is, Because the Bible here kind of makes it sound like these things are all happening at once. But the chronology is not really completely um, fluid. Acts chapter 12 records some events that happened before those of Acts chapter 11. It would appear from Galatians 2, where Paul is writing, that he showed up in Jerusalem with the famine relief funds at least 14 years after his conversion, about 48 A.D., this places him in Antioch around forty six to forty seven AD after this time after his time in Syria and Sicily, Sicilia, 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 according to Galatians chapter one verse twenty one. There's almost a decade of Paul's Christian life thirty seven to forty six AD that we know nothing about. Luke states only that Paul was found by Barnabas in and around Tarsus Acts chapter eleven twenty five and Galatians 1.21. Luke's purpose is to provide not a biography of Paul, but rather an overview of the birth and the growth of the early church. Now, I made the argument earlier when we first launched into this book, and I gave that long introduction, that this book is not a biography. It is not a biography of the gospel of Peter. It's not a biography of Paul spreading the gospel. I think a lot of times we think that. Um, Peter. We, get, we feel like we know Peter a lot from the gospels, and then we get into Acts, and he shows up a lot, and then Paul just becomes the dominant focus. But there are many years between Paul's conversion and here that we don't know what happened to Paul. And there's many things that will happen here and here that we're not given a lot of details. And this is just another thing that points to the fact that this isn't a biography about a certain specific believer or Christian or what they did, or even a manual of how to do church. But this is merely just How is the gospel spreading throughout the world? And how is God using people as words of testimony and doing miracles to validate that? And how is the world responding to that? That's the main focus. Witherington says this, It is in order to ask what picture is painted of the social situation of the early church in this narrative. Four factors stand out. First, the early church in Jerusalem was not part of the Jewish power structure, nor was it well connected with either the Jewish kings or the Roman governors who ruled Judea between 30 and 60 AD. We know this because the Jewish there hated them and attacked them, which means they're not connected to that power center. And they had no political sway in influencing Peter from, or Herod from not arresting Peter and getting him out of jail or any other time that anybody's ever gone to jail. So, they are not connected to either power in any kind of way. Thus, the church was marginalized and subject to persecution and prosecutions of various severity. Second, there were some Christians of social means, such as the mother of John Mark, who would help the church grow and develop. Third, the narrative suggests not only were there multiple meeting places for the early church, but that the early church had not required everyone to sell or give up their property. Fourth, the example of Rhoda may suggest that the early church did not immediately require the abolition of slavery within the community, That there is a slim chance she may have been a hired free woman. There's an example here that she was a slave. She was a servant girl. And so they may have not abolished it. Or it could have been, and I'm not going to go into this, but slavery in the ancient world wasn't exactly like our slavery either. Our slavery was just downright demonic and, and irrational in so many kinds of ways. But slavery back then could have been abusive or it could have just been more of an indentured servanthood, kind of like what we would think of like a glorified butler in kind of a way that that, could people mistreat them? Yes. Did that automatically mean that everybody did? No. Do some people mistreat, mistreat their employees in America? Yes. Does that mean that everybody does that? No. So... Um, So they may have not completely abolished slavery yet, or they're not treating her in the same way as a slave necessarily.